the word of God speaks to us like this. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of, of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other. A beloved son, finally he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, guys. Rowdy group, huh? Love it. Uh, we did okay? All right. Well, um, I'm really glad to be here, and it's a privilege to, uh, to get to open the Word of God. I, I think about this uh, from time to time as I've had to come out here I think thir- three times I've been out here. Had to. I got to come out here three times. And uh, just it's crazy, you know, to think about growing up in this community and uh, a person who was far from God for uh, most of my upbringing, and somehow God... Uh, pursued me, chased me down, outran me, and saved me. And now to like open his scriptures in this community is like a, it's just an interesting thing that I kind of think through in my own head to go, man, God really is good. And he really does outpace us and he really does have purpose for us, you know. And so uh, as I get to open God's word today, I want to encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 11, 27 to, uh, to 12, 12, the passage that was just read. If you're jumping in today, we're in this uh, series um, through the Gospel of Mark. We've been here since the Sunday after Easter last year, and we're going to finish this thing off uh, Easter this year. And so if uh, you're not reading Scripture or uh, not sure where to pick up in your day-to-day kind of intake of the Bible, like, I'd encourage you just to open up the Gospel of Mark and, uh, and run with us, ask questions of it, and, uh, and then let us entertain those conversations with you. And so we're in a, 
a really heated section of the book of Mark, so I, I don't want to uh, push any more with kind of the introductory stuff. I want to just jump in to the passage. So I invite you to pray for me. I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would shape us. Father, I pray that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit today, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray, would you expose what's hidden in us? Would you expose what we would rather cover up? And would you draw all of us into the light of your Son? Would you interpret our lives by his light? And would we interpret our own life by, by his light? We, would we agree with you today is what I'm asking and so would you speak to us by your word for the variety of places of anxiety or doubt or even assurance of faith, somewhere in between all of that. Would you speak to us by your word today? And uh, we ask that everything that you intend to be accomplished would certainly be accomplished. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. We all said, amen, amen. Well, several years ago, I heard someone say in a conversation, what you really believe will be exposed when you're squeezed. What you really believe will be exposed when you're squeezed. And over the years, I've, I've thought about that. That may not be uh, all that much of a profound statement, but, but it rings true, doesn't it? Like, what do you do when your conscience is compromised? And how you deal with that will reflect what you really believe about yourself or the situation, right? When suffering comes into your life and when the dark day sort of takes, takes heart of your soul, how you respond to that and the line that you walk will reveal something about, about you. Who gets the final say in your life when your impulses are one thing, but they're in conflict with something else? Who gets the final say as to who you are and what you're to do? We, we could put that in a variety of scenarios, but it's true that what you're saying, what you say you're being formed by isn't so much a matter of what you would say, but it's a matter of what happens in those moments, right? It's a matter of what happens in those moments. What happens when you're under pressure? What happens when what you've said you always believe is now in conflict with the path of least resistance and it would just be easier to take another path? What happens when the temperature rises? It's in those moments that the issue of authority really matters. It's in those moments that the issue of authority really matters, who or what is your authority will actually be exposed in those moments. And I bring all that up because this is actually where we are in the book of Mark. We're opening here in chapter 11, and just think about the structure of the book. What's been happening is that through 10 chapters, Mark uh, is working through the, th the first three years or the three years of the earthly ministry of Jesus. So 10 chapters for three years. But in these last six chapters, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, those slow down into the last six days of his life. Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem and we're in the final week of his life. So the stakes are high. This, the end is near. The conversations get heated. The volume is cranked up. The work of redemption that we all know is coming through his crucifixion is around the corner. And so this is the moment in the book where the world shrinks into miniature. And what I mean by that is not only for the people that were living with Jesus in those moments, but also us as we're peering in as readers of the text. The world shrinks into miniature. Everything comes down to this moment. Everything comes down to these conversations. There's no more the opportunity to just be a spectator with Jesus. You actually have to deal with him. The text today is going to force you to deal with him. What, what do I do with him? For, for 10 chapters, Mark has been building the case, who is Jesus? Now, 
the question shifts. He's not just simply trying to tell us who he is. He's now shifting the question to you and to me. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with him? You have to make a decision on this man. And so in our passage today, Jeff picked up last week with the conversation around taxes and the resurrection, politics and religion. There's these series of heated conversations that people are having with Jesus, coming to deal with him, coming to bear with him, even trying to trap him. And this is another one of those conversations today. So here's how we're going to work through this. I've got five moves for our time together. I'll give you the map and then we'll get to work. Uh, The first is I just want to capture the scene. I want to capture the scene and the real essence of this conversation so we're kind of brought up to speed as to what's happening. I want to talk about their problem, particularly the religious leaders who confront him. What's their problem with Jesus? And then I want to talk about our problem with Jesus. (laughs) And then I want to talk about the problem with our problem. And then lastly, the God of judgment. The, The God of judgment, which is a chipper ending to a sermon. Amen? Let's get to it. Hey, pick up with me in verse 27, and we'll get to the essence of this conversation. It says, they came again into Jerusalem. Pause there really quickly. Where this hits in the narrative is the day after Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it, overturned the tables, drove out the money changers, caused that big scene of rebuke and confrontation in the temple. Uh, Temperatures uh, rose. The tempers flared around that moment. It was a pretty intense moment. You would assume, hey, let's just let the air clear. Let's let everyone calm down. Let everyone go to the back of their corners and maybe we pick up later. But actually what this suggests, they came again to Jerusalem the next day. The, the next day, Jesus walks back to the scene of the drama. And it says this, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. When we read that, that's the big three in his day. These were the most influential groups of the religious system in his day, right? They made up the Sanhedrin. Maybe you've heard that before, these chief priests these scribes and these elders, they just experienced the rebuke of Jesus the day before in the temple. They've got problems with him. They're angry with him. Whatever we're about to read is not a casual conversation. Uh, This is voices are raised, tones are dropped. Like this is a serious conversation. Who do you think you are just to come back here? We've We've got to deal with what happened yesterday. So pick up in 28. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They're saying, hey, aren't you that backwoods kid from Nazareth? And they've already mocked him earlier in the book saying, hey, weren't you of illegitimate birth? We don't even know who your dad is. And and the dad that you claim to have, isn't he a carpenter? Don't you come from a blue-collar family? Who do you think you are doing these things? By what authority? Or who are you working for? They say, who gave you this authority? Who's your boss? Like, you can't just come in here and wreck shop as if you're somebody who are you? And in verse 29, Jesus says, hey, I see your question, but I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. They're coming at him with heat. And the way that I read this, Jesus responds with a non-anxious presence. I know that you're all caught up in this, but hey, hey let me de-escalate things for just a second. I want to ask you a question in response. And if you can do that, maybe we can have an adult conversation about this, right? So Jesus responds, and here's his question in verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven, or was it from man? (laughs) Now, this seems interesting, right? Because they're asking, hey, by what authority did you do the stuff you just did yesterday, making making an embarrassment of us and the religious structures of our moment? How do you do those things? They're flared. Jesus is like, hey, let's actually talk talk about the baptism of John. This seems like he's derailing things. What, What is he doing here? 
Jesus is displacing the focus to put the focus back on John's ministry, one that was about baptism and about Jesus. Remember John the Baptist, the one who came before Jesus, calling everyone to repentance from sin, telling everyone the Messiah of God is coming, the kingdom of God is about to break into the world. He was the one preparing the way for Jesus. His whole ministry was about Jesus. Even John said, this is the one who I told you about that was to come and pointed at Jesus. And so John's ministry, Jesus is asking, was it from heaven? Like, was that from God? Or did he just make that stuff up? Was that from him? This is the question he pitches to them. And so when Jesus asks this question, here's what's interesting. Like, this isn't a rebuke. He's not trying to trick them. The reason he asks this question is because they've come at him with heat, and he knows if you'll actually answer this question honestly, if you'll actually deal with this question, then you'll actually answer the question you're asking me. You'll answer your own question. Just answer this question. Was the ministry of John from heaven or from man? So they huddle up to figure out their response. Pick up in 31. And so they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven then he's going to say, <laughs> so they're like trying to predict the answer, then he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from man, then now we're afraid of the people, for they all hold John to be a prophet. So they realize, dang, he caught us. <laughs> they're coming at him, trying to trap him, all the while he comes with sobriety to the moment and actually traps them. They're trying to pin him. He pins them. They're realizing if we affirm John as a prophet, then we have to affirm Jesus because John told us about Jesus. And if we do that, well, now, now we'll, we'll be seen as those who are rejecting God's Messiah because we reject Jesus. And we can't do that because if we do that, it'll tear down our power and position and we'll be exposed as frauds. That can't happen. But then on the other hand, if we reject John, then we'll be rejected by the people because they held John to be a prophet and a legitimate messenger from God. And we can't do that because if we do that, it'll tear down our power and positions and we'll be exposed as frauds. It's lose-lose for these guys. So notice how they answer. Verse 33, they look back at Jesus and they say, um, we don't know. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't know that they punt. That's what they do. They punt on their response to Jesus. And listen, they repunt not because they know, not because they don't know. They punt because they're arrogant. And they're not really interested in dealing with this conversation. They just want to be right. They want to deal with him. And they punt on this to cover over in their consciences what they know to be true, but an effort to save their own power and position. So here's what's interesting. These guys had actually come to a moment. This is actually really prophetic and telling on us. They had come to this moment where their religion and their politics, their addiction to power and platform, their religion and their politics had become so enmeshed that they couldn't tell where the one ended and the other began. They couldn't pull them apart. And so in their minds, God has to be on our side. And if we ever come to find out that he's not, then it's not on us to get right with God. He's just got to go because we've got to be right. That's the scary moment they came to. God's got to be on our side. And if we ever come to find out that he's not, the issue's not with us. The issue's with God, and he's got to go. And so notice what Jesus does. He responds to them, and he says, well, then neither will I tell you by, why, by what authority 
I do these things. Jesus responds as if to say, I'm not going to play your games. I'm not here to play your games as though I'm the one that's on trial and you're my jury. Like, that's not how this is going to work. And so what happens is Jesus continues the conversation, and he tells them this story. He says, there's this landowner, and he bought this big field. And he wanted to put a vineyard there, so he did. But he hired some guys to run the vineyard because he had some business in another country, so he went to go take care of that. And while they were running the vineyard, eventually he sent some of his other employees to go check in on what was happening there on the vineyard. And when he sent one to go check in, the people there didn't like the accountability they were being given at harvest season, and so they beat that person up. Word gets back to the landowner. He's not too happy about it, but he sends another to check in. I've got to know what's happening on this property I bought and this vineyard that I've planted. So another one comes, they do the same thing to him. They treat him shamefully and they beat him up and they throw him out. Word gets back to the landowner, so he sends a third. This one comes and the tenants are getting really upset by this point about the accountability that's coming from the landowner. And so they kill the third one. And many other comments says they either beat him up or they killed him, they mocked him, they rejected him, something. Finally, the landowner is getting pretty upset about all this. And he says, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. He's the heir to this inheritance. Surely they'll respect my son. So he sins, and they kill him. Jesus tells them the story. And he looks at him, he ends the story, and he says, this is how it's all gone down. What do you think the landowner's going to do? What do you, you think is going to happen if this has all gone down? He's drawing them in to go, well, well the landowner's got to do something about all this. And he says, yeah. The landowner is going to destroy them. He's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. And then he ends this parable by quoting this scripture from Psalm 118 in, in chapter, chapter 12, verse 10. Notice what Jesus says. Have you guys not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has actually become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing. And it is, and it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this psalm had always been read by the Jewish people as this prophetic prayer about the Messiah to come, God's Messiah. And so when Jesus ends this story where he draws them into the same conclusion that judgment is coming, they realize, oh man, he's telling this parable about us. And he's also telling this parable about him. They clue in, God is the landowner. God is the landowner. The the religious leaders that he's talking to are the tenants that were meant to keep the vineyard Israel flourishing as a vine for the nations. And the servants that were killed were all the prophets through the Old Testament that God kept sending, calling for repentance and turning from sin. They repeatedly rejected them, beat them, cast them out, and killed them. And now they hear Jesus applying sonship to the Father to himself in this messianic promise from Psalm 118 to himself. And they realize, oh, he just did it. We ask him, by what authority do you come in the temple and do these things? And Jesus, in the roundabout way, through this parable, just answered their question. You want to know by what authority I come into the temple and I do this stuff? I do this stuff because it's my temple. It's my temple. You've made it a place of politics and of power, and you oppress the poor. And I'll tear this temple down, and I'll rebuild it again in three days. And the irony and the tragedy of this moment is that Israel had been the stone that the empire builders of the ancient world had rejected. They were constantly being oppressed and occupied by enemy nations. 
and now the Messiah that has actually come through Israel for the nations is being rejected by Israel. And this is what Jesus means when he says, I'm the stone that you've rejected, but I'm actually the cornerstone, the foundation of God's redemptive work in the world. It's going to fall on my head and my suffering, and by this parable, it's going to come at your hands. And this shook them. Jesus just read their mail, and they hated it. And so their conclusion when they heard this is, we've got to shut this man down or he's going to upend us. We have to silence him now. Let's shift. So what's their problem? That's the conversation. What's their problem? Remember, these are religious leaders. (laughs) Like they're into God, right? They have like bumper stickers on their camels and stuff. If that's a thing. They're into God. Their problem is not with God so much as they conceive God. Their problem is not with God. Their problem, though, is with God coming on a collision course with their structures of power and their agenda. They don't like that. When God confronted their agenda, hey, listen, when they were squeezed, what they really believed came out. Their solution, their solution to God coming in confrontation with them and their agenda and their structures was we've got to silence him or we've got to kill him, we've got to do something. So now their problem actually sheds light on our problem. (laughs) It actually sheds light on our problem. Because when the authority of God confronts us, our response isn't too different. Our response isn't too different. Like you and me, we're people who love the authority of God, you know? Like we have like the bumper stickers too, like God is in control. We love that. In case of a rapture, this car will be, you know, unmanned or something, you know. We love these. We love the control of God. We love the authority of God. He's the one that's going to have the final say. We love that, except for in the case of money in my situation. (laughs) We love the authority of God, except for in the case of money in my situation. You say, what do you mean by that? What do you do when the authority of God touches your conscience in a way that you don't want him to. So like, what do you do when the authority of God wants to, wants to address the issue of your money or generosity? Well, I don't wanna talk about that. What do you do when the authority of Jesus shows up and wants to address the issue of sexual lust and the secret thoughts and intentions of your heart, the things you're cultivating under the surface. What do you do when the authority of God parks his car in the driveway and comes to the door and wants to talk about bitterness and resentment and the unforgiveness in your heart toward those that have hurt you? And he actually is going to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What do you do when the authority of God wants to talk about the issue of gossip and being patient and loving people that are different than you? You see, when the authority of Jesus goes to those places, when it addresses our situation, like the religious leaders, 
we tend to have one of two responses. So here's what we do. On the one hand, we take the authority of God that we claim to love, but in the moment that it confronts us, what we do is we just chunk the authority in favor for God's kindness. I love his authority until his authority deals with me, but I don't want to get rid of God. I want to keep him around, just take off the thing that's confronted me and instead emphasize his kindness. Well, I know that that thing isn't right in my life. It's not as it should be. But after all, he's a God of love. Oh, that's what the cross, I know that the thing isn't right, but that's what the cross is for. And he'll just he'll forgive me. I know I should really deal with that. I know that that should be something that I, I face in my life. But doesn't the Bible say that he loves me right where I am? And he understands that it's a complicated set of situations that have gotten me here. And he'll just, he understands that. The other response to Jesus, if on the one hand we just chunk his authority in favor for kindness, here's the other thing we'll do if we choose a second option. We'll just deconstruct and get rid of him altogether. Because when Jesus confronts you, isn't it easier just to stop believing in Jesus? When Jesus confronts you, I'll, oh, I'll deal with that. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just believe something different in order to make room for the thing I want to keep around, right? Get rid of him altogether. Here's what's happening in this passage where it draws all of us. This is not just first century abstracted stuff. Like this actually draws into this room. Here's what's happening. What Jesus uncovers for the religious leaders is what he's uncovering for us. No matter what kind of prayer you've prayed in the past, hang there with me for a second. Because isn't that so much of what happens in the Bible Belt where we just base our security with God based on a prayer we prayed in the past at youth camp or a VBS or some mission trip somewhere. As I prayed a prayer of repentance, a sinner's prayer, and I'm good with God regardless of the fact that my life doesn't look like anything that prayer would resemble. But I've got fire insurance because I prayed a prayer back there. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what kind of prayer you've prayed in the past. The religious leaders prayed prayers every day. Their whole life was built on the series of prayers they prayed every day. It doesn't matter what kind of prayer you've prayed in the past. When the authority of God shows up, it actually reveals who your God or Lord really is. And I'm not saying that to make anyone in this room doubt their salvation. Like That's the last thing I want. The issue is not a prayer you prayed back there. The issue is what do you confess today? That's where assurance, that's where security is found. Not back then, what do you confess today? And so here's what's interesting. Their problem sheds light on our problem, but there's actually a problem with our problem. It may be true that we don't want God to confront us, <laughs> but we want his kindness, don't we? We want his grace, we want his forgiveness, we want his restoration, we want his peace, we want his comfort, but the problem is none of those things are real if you don't have them with his authority, as though you can take what you want and divorce the bigger issue. You can't have his kindness without his authority. It's what makes his kindness actually kind, because the one with all authority has then moved toward you with benevolence. What kind of kindness is this? You can't have his grace and forgiveness if you don't have his authority. Because it's his authority that makes his grace and forgiveness actually the bottom line. When, when the judge lays down a verdict, 
that you're released, well, then that's a forgiveness you can rest in. And that's grace that makes a difference. You can't have his peace without his authority. It's his authority that makes the sense of peace. Without his authority, I'll say it this way, without his authority, peace is at best wishful thinking. Right? It's just at best wishful thinking like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, doggone it, people like me. It's coaching yourself up to best case scenarios and that works until it doesn't. And then that doesn't is actually pretty quickly after you thought you just built a structure of security for yourself. The only things that makes his peace actually peaceful is that it comes from the all-knowing maker of heaven and earth. And with all authority, he says, I got you. That's what makes peace really peaceful. So Jesus is saying here is I'm not here to be put on trial by you as though I'm the one that has to answer your questions. And I haven't come so that you can co-opt whatever part of me fits with your agenda so long as you bypass the bigger issue of my authority. I haven't come for that. And so this lands us in the bottom here, the God of judgment, the big finish we've all been waiting for, the God of judgment. Jesus responds to these religious leaders who, they want to reject his authority, so what he does is he tells them this parable, this story about judgment. And I wish I could tell you, like, it's not actually about judgment, and that judgment's not real, it's just some sort of, no. What's crazy here is that in plain ink that you and I can read, he says, what's the landowner going to do? He's going to destroy you. Like, I can't matrix backbend slow enough to, like, dodge this one. Like, this is actually a parable about judgment. And Jesus tells it. He doesn't retract it, saying, oh, I didn't really mean that. Now sit with this. This is amazing. So he cleanses the temple on Monday. He shows back up on Tuesday. He's telling this parable about judgment. He's warning them about judgment. But in an act of incomprehensible love, just days from this, i.e. Friday, the crucifixion, Just days from Tuesday, he's about to take the judgment on his head that he's warning them of if they would but look to him. The authority that they are trying to silence, that we try to silence when it confronts us, is actually going to speak all the more loudly in the resurrection from the dead. Because when you get up out of the grave, they can't shut you up anymore. You can't silence, no matter how hard you try, your conscience right now bears witness to this reality in the world. You can't silence the authority of God. You can't. And so the Apostle Peter preaches this sermon after the resurrection in the early church. Acts chapter 4 records it to us. It says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but he has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Peter pulls this together. So here's where I want to land today. Let it stun you. Let it stagger you. That the very voice 
that we try to silence and shove down and squash is also the voice that speaks for our release. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the voice they wanted to shut up. And it's the voice that actually speaks for theirs and your release. The very authority that we try to avoid is the very authority that is now leveraged for our forgiveness. Before the throne of God, he is our advocate. And it's by his wounds that we've been healed. So I want to leave you with two questions. Two questions to end our time together. Sort of take away, what do we do with this? Hey, where in your life are you trying to silence Jesus in favor for your own way? Where are you trying to silence Jesus in favor for your own way? So there's these moments when you're like on your commute to work or it's on your commute home or it's these other random moments when you're over a meal with a friend or just trying to power through your inbox when you just have this moment of clarity that there's an area of your life that you know <laughs> is bent and needs, needs attention before God. And the question I'm trying to ask is when that moment hits you, where are you silencing that and shoving it in favor for just less resistance? The burden of this passage is that when the authority of God speaks, let it breathe. Let it breathe. The second question I want to throw out there is this. Two times in this passage, it says the religious leaders were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the opinions of other people. And it kept them from actually dealing honestly with Jesus. The second question is, hey, where in your life are you afraid of the opinions of others or you're nervous about the approval of others and it's keeping you from honoring Jesus. It's super real, right? Like, I can be cool with Jesus so long as I'm with people who are cool with Jesus, but then when I'm around people who are indifferent or opposed, I sort of play a different card because I just want to, I just want to fly under the radar. It's actually a really dangerous place of compromising your own conscience. Where, where might that be? So I land with like, let it stun you. The voice that you try to silence is also the same voice that cries out for your release. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Let's pray.